Welcome to the Ponder a New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis. And this season we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis. It's a new year and many people sort of pledge to get started with the Bible in a new year. And so I want to help you if that's your, your aim here. Uh, my hope is that in this first uh, session, we can think a little bit about how we're going to look at the book of Genesis as a whole, especially some of these early chapters, and then get into the creation of the world at least the first five and a half days. We, we won't make it through all seven, but we'll get through the first uh, five and a half today. So as we begin and uh, with Genesis and then the creation of the world, I invite you to uh, ponder uh, the beauty of the earth and the majesty of this world that God has made and prepare our hearts to ask those deep questions about why we're here. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God sent them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. In the beginning, the words of Genesis chapter 1 have enchanted, inspired, confounded thinkers, artists, musicians, believers, all of humanity for nearly three millennia. And we're going to take a look and and hopefully be in awe and in wonder of that. But before we do that, I want to turn, I need to take a sort of a pause here and think about how we read Scripture or more how we can let Scripture speak to us. And so I'd, I'd like to sort of begin then with a, a question, and that is that do you tend to be somebody who, leads, who reads Scripture more literally or more metaphorically? And in some ways, this is a trap question because I don't think we can ever just read the Bible literally or just read it metaphorically. So, for example, somebody could say, well, I'm a literalist. Well, how do you read the Lord is my shepherd? Do you really imagine yourself to be now... A, you know, a shepherd who needs to be sheared, uh, you know, at least once a year and, you know, tastes like mutton or something. I mean, that's, no, that we all know instinctively that this is a, a metaphor for God's provision for us and it's put in beautiful language. Likewise, when we hear in the Gospels that Jesus was beaten, whipped before he was crucified, This is not meant to be metaphorical. There was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was bloodily beaten. So the Bible in itself has these different ways of of thinking about it. It's kind of like when I was in elementary school, and I'm sure you were too, one of the specials was library. And in the library, you know, the teacher would read a book, librarian, and then they'd say, you know, you can go pick a book. And there was like a whole nonfiction section that had maps, I'm sorry, atlases, encyclopedias, dictionaries, um, science books, social studies, history books. Uh, then there were also um, like fiction books. It might have been poetry or might have been a play or a, a picture book or a mystery novel or a short story, whatever. And they all were a little bit different. And, and you knew that if you were going to read uh, an atlas, you were looking for something different than if you were reading Shel Silverstein's, you know, Where the Sidewalk Ends. 
And what told you, you, you kind of knew what section it was in, and you sort of know in your mind, oh, this is a dictionary, therefore this is going to tell me how to pronounce and how to spell words and so forth. And what's challenging is that the Bible doesn't um, always come with neat labels, like as if it's organized to tell you, oh, now you're reading this kind of genre. But the truth is that the, the various types of the Bible are different literature. And yes, the, the Psalms clearly are meant to be read differently than the Passion accounts in the Gospels. So the question then, I think, becomes whenever we approach a particular part of Scripture, whenever we're reading it, it's really worth asking ourselves, what, what clues is the author giving us about how to interpret this? What, how, what kind of lenses should we have on? So like when Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you a story or I'm going to tell you a parable. Well, you, you know this isn't a true story, but it's going to have a deeply true meaning. Um, so, so again, what kind of clues does it, does it give? And that may not um, mean that if we decide that something is metaphorical, that it doesn't have historical or scientific truth. Uh, it may, though, be a passage that, has, that conveys meaning on multiple levels. Um, but, but again, whenever a passage comes, what, what is it suggesting about how we should interpret it? Well, I would like to suggest that Genesis 1 is likely to be read as theological poetry. <laughs> what I mean is, is that it's, it's really meant to be an artwork about how uh, the world came to be, and it's theological, and then it's deeply trying to convey truths about who God is. And there's a couple sort of hints or, or suggestions by the authors that, um, that, that this is, again, uh, more poetry, more artistic than an actual attempt at science or history. And, what, and by authors, uh, although, again, nobody knows exactly who wrote it, um, typically people would uh, believe, based on sort of the style of Hebrew that it is and, and other things, um, that it, it arose in its form we now read somewhere in the middle of the sort of 500s, like 550 B.C., during the exile, um, by these sort of rabbis and, and, and priests and other scribes who were in exile there. But, uh, but what again, so I think there's at least a couple things that suggest in the passage that these writers are, are aiming for something very poetic here. The first is actually the very first word in the Old Testament. The very first word in the Old Testament actually is not in the beginning. It's in a beginning. And um, translators just like, can't bring themselves to, to do that. But, but linguistically... Um, at least according to monks in the 4th century B.C. who were transcribing this, or for, um, that, that it is in a beginning. And what suggests that it's in a beginning is also that when you get into the first sentence, there's this, there's this ocean that's kind of chaotic, and there's, you, like, where did that come from? <laughs> um, so, so it seems like there, there's something going on here where there's sort of a backstory we don't have. And then Genesis 1 and, and, and Genesis 2 um, don't have or have an obvious chronological contradiction in terms of the order of, of animals and humans.
and and even they have different names of God. It's covered up a little bit in English. Maybe you see some capitals in Genesis chapter 2. So the one is the story of Yahweh creating Adam and Eve, and the other is of Elohim sort of creating all the heavens in a grand thing. And the authors, uh, again, the people who are compiling the Old Testament, these brilliant scholars, they had no worry about the seeming contradiction. And that's because for them, the sort of historical scientific detail contradiction didn't bother them because they wanted a coherence of meaning. And both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 profoundly echo similar themes in terms of who God is and what humanity's role in this world is in relationship to God and the Creator. So the last thing is just that the word day and night become kind of strange here. In, in that it's not until day four that sun and moon are actually really created. And that's kind of goofy to have days and night without sun and moon. And then you even have um, fruit-bearing trees before there are seasons and, and night and day. And, and even the ancients, everybody knew that, you know, a tree would need, you know, the sun and it would need seasons to sort of function as a fruit-bearing tree. So, I, I, again, I think that they're aiming for, for poetry. And we're going to go into that poetry a little bit more here. But I just want to suggest that at the very outset that there's some, some clear ways in which the, the passage itself, the writers are trying to say, we're not trying to describe here the scientific and processes, molecular and chemical and physical, um, what happened in the first you know, billionth of seconds as energy was released into the universe. They, they're, they're going for something else. Again, they're going for why humanity is here and what kind of God we worship. And so let's then, um, if you can go with me that far, and, and actually I want to say that there are some really beautiful scientific things that, that, that the original account seems to cohere with our science. Um, but I, I really want to try to avoid um, making science fit in Genesis chapter 1. First of all, because science is always changing, which means we'd always be sort of changing Genesis 1 to fit it. And again, more importantly, it's really intended to be a poetic explanation of who we are and who God is. And so who is God then? Well, the first thing, and again, this is where you start to get some of the really beautiful poetry, is the God given to us in Genesis 1, I should say, first of all, is one God, and is a God who doesn't create the world through as... Um, other cultures in the, the Middle East and the ancient world had God create, which is often through sexual reproduction. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that I'm probably just uh, taking for granted that we all sort of assume anyway. And if you're really fascinated at some point, you can, uh, you know, read how the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are different than other uh, Near Eastern cultures and their creation myths. So, again, there's probably a lot of stuff that um, just... If somebody in the ancient Near East read this, they'd say, well, that's a strange account of how the world came to be. But for our purposes, I'm probably going to assume a lot of, uh, again, that there's one God that, um, and that this God creates the word and the spirit. Um, so probably a lot that I'm assuming here. But maybe some things that I, I'm not sure if you're as aware of in, in how this creation account actually works. And, and, the one, and the thing is, the first thing is that God brings order out of chaos, 
So in chapter verse 1, verse 1, we get in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. And, you know, even though we have a lot of modern safety devices, the ocean is terrifying. I mean, I love the beach, but I've, you know, felt riptides on my feet. I've felt the force of the waves bring me under. Um, yeah, the waters are, are chaotic. And so there's this image now of a God who's going to bring order out of chaos. And if uh, the way that it's sort of set up, I almost want you to imagine it's, what it's doing is there's this repetition each day, this poetic refrain. There was, you know, there was night and there was day, and God saw that it was good. But sort of days one, three, and five are parallel in many ways to days two, four, and six. And it's almost as if you have this one giant room, like a temple, like the temple of creation. And right in front of you, off in the distance, is day seven, where God is dwelling. But then sort of there's three columns on each side of this beautiful temple, day, representing days one, three, and five, representing days two, four, and six on the other side. Because one and four both involve light and darkness, the heavens, Two and four involve the waters and the sky, and then three and six involve the land. And it's, it's that you're getting increasingly complex as you move forward. And so you, again, just have this amorphous light and darkness. And then you um, begin again to get more complex, ultimately even more complex life forms. And this is in itself something that science suggests, right, that there is sort of this, the beginning of the universe is just way too hot and crazy for any life to form yet, sort of has to cool down, become, move from nebulous to more concrete. And even now, we would say that species are capable of higher order thinking than previous species. So there's a way in, in, in which creation seems um, to reflect this arc here towards becoming a more organized system. The second thing is that throughout the book of, um, throughout the first chapter of Genesis, the various elements of creation are themselves brought into the act of creation. So uh, day one and two, God's doing the work. But then on day three, God says, verse 11, let the earth put forth vegetation plants yielding seed, and so forth. Then in verse, four, uh, verse 20, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. And now, and then even to those um, the living creatures, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Or even going back to day uh, four, the creation of the sun and the moon. In verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So you see that there's this, the, um, these ways in, in which creation is so fertile, so endowed with creative capacity, so reflecting God's creative capacity that it itself is brought into the act of creation. 
there's a term co-creators, right? That sort of God, uh, and, and maybe we don't want to say that, that plants are co-creators, but there is a way. We see this even now with the virus and the variants, that life has an ability to adapt, to multiply. Um, and, and again, life is endowed with a creative capacity. So God is not only bringing order out of chaos, but God is doing so in a way that is involving the rest of creation in this act of creation. This isn't a sort of an authoritarian order, but one in which um, creation is allowed to sort of be expansive, um, yet somehow all being brought under God's reign uh, to work uh, with and, and towards and for each other. That seems like a sufficient amount for an opening study here on the book of Genesis as we reflect on how we're going to look at this, and my invitation to look at this as poetry, deeply theological poetry that's, that's uh, beautifully and poetically answering some of these deepest questions about who God is and who we are as humans. Next episode, we'll really take a look at that second question of why we're here as we look then at the sort of the sixth and seventh day of creation and uh, really the creation then of humanity. But I hope this uh, inspired you to think about the uh, wonders of God and of this world and are drawn into praise of our Creator.